also doesn't have to be super long. Don't worry. I mean, I only like the Bible because it quotes the prayer book really well, so, you know. Are you also could bring in something from the prayer book or the hymnal. Any sacred text. So if you want to think a little more. I'm good, because I don't want to think more, because that's... Great. Let's start. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Take away. All right. Hello, and welcome to Tea Time Theology. I'm Ivy Swinsky, and today's guest is the Reverend Dante Tavalero. And today we'll be talking about queering the church. So, Dante, why don't we start with your Bible quote? Excellent. So, I've chosen as my Bible quote uh, a verse from Psalm 84, uh, specifically verse 11, um, which goes, No good thing will the Lord withhold from those who walk with integrity. Why? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm sorry. But but why? (laughs) So, I think... For me, the first principle in thinking about what it means to both be a queer person in the church and in queering the church um, is integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, because without anger, without integrity, I don't think anything else works. And so it's, um, it's that reminder that when we live with integrity, um, we're living how God calls us to live. And I actually think the whole of that psalm in general um, is really a guiding scripture passage for me in that it talks about the journey of life and the desire to be in relationship with God. Um, And there are easy moments in that and really hard moments in that and well. Um, But ultimately, if we live with integrity, that's um, the path we've been called to follow. Awesome. I took it a little differently for my secular quote. So I did Raising Hell by Kesha, who I personally love. Um, And specifically, her lyrics, Can I get an amen? This is for the misfits of creation. Take this as your holy validation. You don't need to hide your celebration. This is our salvation. And I think about thinking in that way, specifically in the idea of queering the church um there's been a lot of othering Mm. in the church of that and having that sort of holy validation i think is a very powerful thing Mm. that's great i'm excited to listen to this song more (laughs) and learn more about those lyrics um, because the few things that i caught in listening to it are really great her whole thing about blood red lipstick and pentecost Mm. girl (laughs) <laughs> i might i might you know be pulling some of those for an upcoming sermon absolutely um so we're here to talk about querying of the church which is a very broad topic that can be taken in so many ways and i think that's one of the reasons that it's such an exciting topic so i want to start with what does that phrase even mean to you so i think As I've thought about this topic in recent days, every day it means something different. And I think that's one of the things I love about the word queer, because there's no real one definition. Um, And if you talk to a whole group of people that use that word as um, their mark of identity, you're going to get different answers about what it means for them. So for me today, I think queering the church 
is about breaking down binaries, about making the church actually more authentic to the gospel, because it's about not limiting people by a societally defined set of standards and definitions. I think that the church is built in a very structured and binary way. They're really, yes, we all like to say that we're very loose and we have different types of worship and all that kind of stuff. There's something beautiful in the structure of the church, but there's also something very stifling and very want to be like it's the patriarchy but it is sort of it's absolutely the patriarchy. yeah no but it like totally is at well, the same time that's, that's the reason why for centuries in so many different categories and and particularly for the queer community the church has been used as such a tool to actually oppress queer people mm -hmm. and and it's it's all because of the patriarchy yeah so now that we've solved that problem, right. um, so for me, in my experience in the church, that was where I met queer people and that, so I have a very different experience than the majority of the mm -hmm. world. Um, do you think that's something that the Episcopal Church specifically does well, or do you think that's something that they have fallen into? Yes. So, um, well, I think there are ways where the Episcopal Church does the inclusion of LGBTQ plus people well. And I think there are some qualifiers around that of what inclusion means in different contexts and settings. Mm -hmm. I think some dioceses are better than others. Some parishes are better than others. And so... I think there are some ways where we do it well and some ways where it it varies and it's a happenstance of like you happen to be in the right community with the right priest in the right time because mm -hmm. um, I know my experiences has actually been incredibly mixed I've had mm -hmm. some amazing life-affirming really great experiences with the church um, and some not-so-positive experiences within the church. And all of that is within the Episcopal Church in the last 15 years. So, yes and. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal experience, if you don't mind? Happy to. So, my experience as a queer person in the Episcopal Church... Um, begins in some ways as I was just starting to come out to myself, which happened around the same time that Gene Robinson was elected to be the Bishop of New Hampshire. So here is this man, this faithful priest, who is an out gay, at that time, married man, and all hell breaks loose. Um, the people of New Hampshire followed their process, they discerned, they elected this guy, great, now it's got to be approved by the rest of the church and everyone and their grandmother has an opinion about it. Uh, the parish that I happened to be in at the time wasn't so thrilled by it. And I heard actually a fair amount of really nasty things about queer people 
in the context of Gene Robinson's election. Not to mention all of the things I heard on the news, online, from around the Episcopal Church. So for me, as a rising freshman in high school, I was like, uh-oh. Here is this place that my whole life has been where I have felt most comfortable. And now someone like me is becoming, or at least was elected to be a bishop, and people are really angry about that. So what does this say, am I really welcome here for the fullness of who I am? Um, I waited a while to come out in the church. Um, before I came out, I knew I was interested in priesthood, and so I felt that I had the most to lose in the church. So it was actually the last place that I came out because the only things I had really seen and heard up to that point were really negative. Um, I'm really glad I made the decision to come out in the church for a variety of reasons. Um, but I think my first real coming out experience, which was um, in coming out as trans um, in the church, is by far my best coming out experience ever. So... To protect the innocent, I won't say where or with <laughs> whom, um, but I was in college at the time, and I've been just agonizing over whether or not I should come out in church. And it's Rhode Island, it's small, so I was mm. out in other parts of my life, but not at church. So you knew as a freshman in high school that Sorry, that was is... something that you wanted to do, but this is like six years later so as a freshman in high school i identified as gay okay um and then it wasn't until my junior senior year of high school that i started to come out to myself around my gender identity okay cool thank you for um, um oh, explaining that of course so by my you know freshman year of college at the mm -hmm. end of that i was like all right i need to start coming out about being trans mm -hmm. And so there was uh, one day I was with some friends. They're using, you know, male pronouns and Dante to refer to me. And we were at the mall and I ran into people from the church and went into full out panic mode. Mm -hmm. Like I dived into a store to avoid this eventual clash. And then I was like, so that was horrible and made the decision. Like, All right, I got to do something about this. And so one afternoon, I happened to be driving by the parish and noticed the rector's office light was on. And so I pulled over and I went inside and I asked him if he had a few minutes to talk. We sit down, some light chit chat. Um, he clearly was ready to go home because it's like 530 or something. So he kind of like, so what's up? And I said, um, so there's something I need to tell you. Uh, this is really hard. Uh, and I'm not sure how you're going to respond, if this is going to be okay, but I need to do this. I'm trans. And for me, that means while I was born female, I live and identify as male. And so I'd like you to start calling me Dante and using male pronouns. And there was a silence that lasted for an eternity, yes. which I think in non-anxious time is like five seconds, mm -hmm. to which this uh, priest said back to me, 
in the words of the great theologian Mr. Rogers, I love you just the way you are. And if anyone gives you a hard time, you tell me and I'll handle it. I mean, I went into his office thinking I was getting kicked out of the church. That was it. Done. <laughs> Priesthood. Yeah, right. And I left feeling seen for the first time fully in my life. Um, this person is still a good friend and ally and mentor. I mean, he went with me when I legally changed my name. Did all of those great and wonderful things that have had a significant impact on, on my life and what I now know means to be a priest. After that, things got dicey. Mm -hmm. um, I was, uh, you know, a, as a general convention deputy, the first out trans person to have that role in the Episcopal Church, as far as we know. Wow, um, that's, that's a lot of people. It's a thing. There's, it's a... <laughs> general and, convention is large. Yeah, so, you know, it's it was an interesting thing to, as the Episcopal Church was wrestling to add gender identity and expression, to um, what's effectively the non-discrimination canon of the church. At 19, I got to get up in the House of Deputies and say, you know, uh, Deputy Tavalero, Rhode Island, and here's my two-minute spiel on why this should happen, um, and effectively come out to, you know, 1,500 people in that two minutes and receive some really wonderful moments of affirmation. Affirmation is actually how that word said. And then also to receive a significant amount of hate mail, mm -hmm. um, you know, to have people say these horrific things about me as a 19-year-old kid. Mm -hmm. um, a conservative blogger in the church wrote a blog post totally trashing me. Wow. You know, and here's this person and who is older, and I don't want to make any assumptions around their identity, but in a different identity category as me writing really nasty things about a 19-year-old. Mm -hmm. And then everything in between. Um, they were challenging moments in my ordination process because as far as we know, I'm the first out trans person to ever be ordained in Rhode Island. And there were moments of like, oh, so what does this mean? And how do we do this? And how do we mm -hmm. repair if someone's going to object at your ordination because they don't think trans people should be ordained? Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I've been lucky to have a sponsoring parish that was super supportive. Um, the parish I serve currently has also been really great, but there have been some some challenging moments as we navigate together what it means to be priest and people when the priest happens to be trans. So it's been interesting. Uh, I'm still totally learning what it all means and am grateful for those people and beacons, those communities that have been really great because the hard stuff just stinks. Yeah. Um, did that shake your faith? In oh, the 100%. Process? Yeah. So I remember... Do, 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 uh, it must, I was in high school, so I was just in the process of coming out as trans to myself. And for a variety of reasons, at that point in time, I had keys to the parish that I belonged to, which was a different parish than the parish I eventually came out in. Mm -hmm. And so one day after school, like I went to the church and let myself in and just started screaming all sorts of obscenities at God. Yeah. 
um, and about basically, um, you know, God, what kind of sick being are you that you'd do this to me? If you mm -hmm. made me this way, why? Like, what did I do to deserve this? And it took me a really long time to see my identity and who God created me to be as a gift and not as some sort of punishment. Yeah. Hey, even if you're cursing, you're still talking. Right. So <laughs> still relationship. Yeah. Um, my, you know, language to God varied in English and Italian swear words. So we're just really working on that, you know, Pentecost sort of moment in an angry kind of way. Hey, at least you had the opportunity to go there and really like express yourself. And I like, there's one book that I really love called The God Box. Hmm. Um, and one of the things that they say is that if you, you do not, and I'm like bastardizing this <laughs> quote, um, but if you are not able to be angry with God, then you do not have a relationship with him. Hmm. Um, and, yeah. and that's something that I really relate to and love that idea that if you can yell at him and have those hard conversations and know that there's still that underlying unconditional love there yeah at that point in time i didn't know yelling god was okay and so kind of waited like as i'm walking out of the parish for that lightning bolt just to come and strike me and that's fair and then it was a little while later where a priest said no it's so it's okay to yell at god i'm like whoo okay yeah <laughs> Moving on. Thank you, first of all, for sharing your story and feeling comfortable here. And in that aspect of being queer in this church, how has that defined your priesthood, but also has it been annoying that it's defined your priesthood? So there are certainly ways where my identity has defined my priesthood. Um, I don't get to do a search with a parish without coming out. And, and each and every step along the way requires a level of coming out. And, and sometimes that coming out conversation happens when I'm not in the room. Mm. And so sometimes I have a heads up and say, hey, what's okay for me to share? Sometimes I'm informed, oh yeah, we had this conversation about you, which doesn't feel great. Um, that's a hard thing. And so, you know, and, and all of my discernment, part of that question, just whether or not I'm willing and interested in having a conversation with a parish is, is this a safe place for me to go? Yeah. Um, and that's a, a question I ask about parishes here in Rhode Island. And as I get ready to think about what's next for my ministry, it's a question I ask about other places. And because there are not... There are dioceses where it is not safe for me to go, both for realities of that diocese and the state they're in. Mm -hmm. And that kind of sucks to know that. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Is yeah, that... sure. Great. Uh, I'm from New York. There's a lot of colorful language in my vocabulary I try to not always no. say. But it does because that means that there are places that I might be really excited about that have to be taken off the table because I wouldn't be safe. And that's mm -hmm. not fair to me or to any parish. And so it is annoying that that has to be a consideration that I regularly have to think about how I say and what I say and where people see me 
in a way that I wonder if some of my colleagues who are not queer have to think about. It's true. And also, and if this is rude, please tell me, um, but you can sort of pass when you come into a room. Um, and deciding whether you're going to come out to that room or not Mm -hmm. and being like is this a space that I need to disclose that part of myself or can I just sort of live in this world but then you're not then you're also lying to yourself and not living authentically and and navigating those super fun waters yeah welcome (laughs) to every day in my life and that's so passing is such an it's an interesting thing and I'm in a new phase having done some more reading and stuff around intersectionality and passing when it comes to race where I have complicated feelings with passing but I do it all the time I walk into a space and there are moments where I'm like "Ooh, I am not saying a word about my identity Mm -hmm. because it doesn't feel safe to do it when I walk into a space in churches or not where I'm hearing a lot of um, heterosexist and sexist jokes I'm like "Ooh." okay, this is not a safe place, and I'm thankful that I've passed in those moments. There are also moments where I hate that I've passed so well um, because of the you know uber level of privilege that I get just walking down the street, but then it also feels like, no, wait, like I'm queer too, like, hi, even though I yeah. look like I'm not. Um, but I know that also means, because I pass really well, I have trans clergy colleagues in other parts of the church that can't get jobs because they don't pass well, because they don't fit um, an image that that some in the church has said, well, it's okay if you're trans as long as you can fit in this, in this box. Mm-hmm. And so I'm aware and I've had conflicting feelings around my own status as an ordained person that like, well, I do fit in that box and try not to go down the road of what would have happened if I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, because that just for me goes nowhere, nowhere good. Yeah. Um, and then there's some moments when I do that and I think, well, that's it. I need to renounce my orders and go buy a food truck and that's <laughs> it. Yes. Do you think your queerness has changed since you've been ordained? So I think it has, though I don't know it's because I'm ordained. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure actually that's probably not fair because I can't separate out my queer self from my priest self and... Mm-hmm. Um, I think I have in some ways uh, become a bit more radical in my queer identity um, since ordination than before ordination. Um, And I think that's because, you know, in seminary, I got to ask questions about life and myself for the first time that I never felt I had permission to ask. Um, And then also some like, all right, some ordains, great. Um, I can actually now stop worrying so much about um, what's the commission going to say? What's the standing mm-hmm. committee to say? Is my parish not going to sign off if they hear that I've done this thing? Yeah. Um, and then I've also gotten more involved in the queer community here in Rhode Island, which has, I think, also changed how I, how I understand myself <clears throat> as a queer person. Has there been backlash to you from the LGBT? and queer community for being ordained and sort of like going to the enemy side. I don't know. That might have been a little <laughs> drastic. <laughs> going to the dark side. Yeah. Um, there have definitely been moments where people in the queer community 
change how they interact with me the moment they find out that I'm a priest. Um, and I get some skeptical looks and some challenges. And sometimes I get, I'm the recipient of a lot of anger, which I know is not about me, mm-hmm. but their, their pain from how horrible the church has been. Mm-hmm. I will say where I give the queer community some credit that I don't give to the church uh-huh. is that, um, so I've recently started playing in the Providence Gay Flag Football League. And when cool. I went there, it's awesome. It's great. I'm pumped about this spring season to start in a few weeks. But when I joined that league, um, what I was most nervous about was not like not being in super great shape. I wasn't worried about being trans. I was worried what would happen when people found out that I'm a priest. So I didn't really say anything. And I totally got outed as a priest in one week because like it's Rhode Island and there are other Episcopalians mm-hmm. in the league and we're sitting... You know, at lunch after a game, they're like, "Hey, you work at St. Luke's." I'm like, oh, "Yes, yes." Cover is blown. <laughs> Cover is blown. And there was a a gentleman who plays in the league who one night came up to me. We were out at a league function and says, "I owe you an apology because the moment I found out you were a priest, I wrote you off." But that's not fair. And there needs to be room for you and any other person of faith in this league. So I want to get to know you and learn you more. And started to get to know one another and have that conversation. Never has have I heard anyone in the church do the same. Mm-hmm. Say someone in the church who may have not, not great understandings or images of the queer community go up to a queer person and say, you know what? I judged you too soon. That's not fair. I'm sorry. I want to get to know you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while I've had a few folks in the queer community who have seen me um, in a sort of suspect way, they've all taken the time to get to know me, to ask questions, and to say, oh, what I have experienced from Christians as what I only define as pure hate um, and sin is not actually who you are. It's not fair for me to put up all of the church's baggage on you as one person. Um, and I haven't seen, I haven't experienced anyway in the church, the church willing to give queer people that same generosity mm-hmm. and openness. There's no personal accountability right. for how you interact with people in the church. Right. And so what I've seen in the church and this, and this comes from an experience of folks who have a negative opinion of queer people, mm-hmm. is that they have one stereotype of what it means to be a queer person. That gets put on every queer person, and then any behavior that is seen as suspect under that lens, and something to be judged, and in some cases, well, to be discouraged, to be shamed, or even like, we're going to pray that you stop that. Mm-hmm. Um which to me is kind of opposite what Jesus calls us to. Yeah, and I think that it, it should be said that your experience as a transgender male will be different than someone who is gender nonconforming mm-hmm. or someone who is lesbian, pansexual, bisexual. There's just so many right. different experiences, and there will be those people who 
experience love and generosity because that's the church that they grew up in and those people love them unconditionally because they already know them. Right. Um, versus someone who walks into a church for a first time and is like, how is this going to work out? Mm-hmm. And I know for myself, just even going and looking at different churches to join, looking at people's websites and seeing like, okay, how welcome are you of everyone? And like the different layer that brings in about not being able to pass or Mm -hmm. very clearly leaning some sort of way. Um, And it's already terrifying to enter a new church. Like it just is. Right. So to add other layers of reasons for people already to dislike you. Well, I've been in a number of parishes here in Rhode Island where I have heard queer people say to me, I walked in and I had to walk immediately out because I knew it wasn't safe. I've had people reach out to me say, hey, I've tried St. Swithin's by the swamp and St. Swithin's over yonder and it didn't feel safe. Is there a church you can recommend? Um, Because I want to go to church, but I also want to be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, most churches you walk into, unless you fit neatly into a gender binary, whether you're cisgender or trans, you're not going to see people who look like you. Frankly, if you're anyone who's not white, generally you're not going to see people who look like you. And so, all right, here's where I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> so, <laughs> as the Episcopal Church, we've got this great thing, like, you know, all means all and all people are welcome and all this mm-hmm. stuff. and. I don't think we've actually done the work to really be there. And this is where we get ourselves into trouble, particularly with the queer community and for people who don't fit binaries or fit their life into heteronormative constructs. They don't Mm want to be, um, you know, for a a white um, gay or lesbian couple that's married with kids that goes on their regular vacations. They fit a narrative of what family means that the church is comfortable with. So great, come on in, you're welcome here. Mm -hmm. But in my experience, anyone in the queer community outside of that heteronormative expression finds a different experience where it becomes much harder. And I think where the Episcopal Church has some growing to do is, you know, we'll put a rainbow flag up outside or stick on our sign, but we haven't actually done the work to be safe spaces if there is such a thing for the queer community. And that's really dangerous and really pisses me off because if a queer person is going to take the risk to step into a church, particularly one that proclaims itself to be inclusive of queer people, that's got the flag or the sticker Mm -hmm. or the whatever designation, and then they're not, the damage they're going to do to that person is far more intense and deep than churches that are clear like, yeah, we're not so cool with queer people. Because then at least you know up front, like, right, if I'm going here, I'm taking this risk. Yeah. But if you open yourself to go to a place that claims to be inclusive but haven't done that work, that's a devastating consequence that I think is, um, I can only label the behavior of the church as sinful in that context. Mm -hmm. And it is our responsibility to actually do the work to be the places we say that we are. 
And the work's uncomfortable. Yeah, nobody wants to hear like, oh, gosh, I'm heterosexist. Like, just like nobody wants to hear like, I'm sexist, I'm racist. Um, and yet, most of my experience in the Episcopal Church, I would qualify as heterosexist or cisgenderist, whatever the, you know, uh, comparative term is for the trans community. Yeah, which is so interesting to me because the Bible isn't really like that. Nope. <laughs> um, where even if I was talking to someone recently, where if you look at the translation of the Holy Spirit, it's really more considered like this third gender being. Right. Or would in our term today use the pronouns they, them, theirs, and that kind of idea. So we've created a space that isn't safe with no actual basis on why. Right. Well, just God in general in scripture is this like gender neutral prone. I didn't take Greek. So this is, you know, I haven't actually read the Greek. Let's be honest. But God has this gender neutral pronoun that is assigned to God in mm -hmm. scripture. And shocking when a group of men got together to start translating scripture and the languages they're translating scripture into don't have that same equivalent because let's be honest we're not going to call god it in english yeah shocking they chose male pronouns to refer to god mm -hmm. even though that's not what the text actually says and yeah. so our whole construction of understanding god in the english language is based off of a translation choice that doesn't act accurately reflect how scripture writes about God. I know. My friend has a t-shirt that says, I met God, she's black. Yes, and it's like, love it. It's like one of my favorite t-shirts because the thing is no one knows. Right. There's no reason that it can't be that or it can't be something else. And you know what? It might be some white guy. Cool. But like there's no actual statement anywhere that it's like, this is who God is. And I think that is such a disservice to god right. and to try and fit a box around something that just can't have a box around it well absolutely and if if scripture and our tradition tells us that each and every person is created in the image of god then that means god looks like all of us so god is is femme and butch and a fairy and all of those other things and and like also maybe a straight white guy. Um, but but God then has to look like all of us if we're created in the image of God. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll also own, I don't really have an anthropomorphized image of God. I think of God more as energy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jesus as a Middle Eastern Jew because like that's what he was. So, but if we're created in the image and likeness of God, then when we look at each and every person around us, um, and we look at all of the identities that are in the human spectrum. Mm -hmm. That's what God looks like. And we just happen to settle on one very white, very blonde image of God, mm -hmm. you know, for, for centuries. Yeah. And have harmed ourselves because of that. Right. We've harmed ourselves and we've harmed others who say, oh, you don't like, look like this, so you're out of here. Something that I've been thinking about recently is this idea of a found family. And I was thinking about the disciples and mm. these 12 disciples who have come together. And to me, I feel like you can definitely, I'm not a Bible theologian. We're not even going to like pretend that. <laughs> but 
reading the Bible with this idea of like this found family and having this queer lens into reading your Bible because there are a lot of ways that it is and the other being accepted into the norm and Mm. those kinds of ideas. Do you have anything to say on that? So, so I think you're totally right. I think we look at scripture and we get a redefinition of what family means. So Jesus says, there's a, there's a story where Jesus's mother and his brothers are outside banging on the door. They think he's lost his mind. They want to take him home. And they say to, you know, somebody in the room says to Jesus, oh, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus says, pointing to those with him, these are my mothers, these are my brothers. And the idea is that his family are the people who have chosen to follow him. So I think that's really great and wonderful because there are so many family dynamics that are not life-giving and supporting that we read about in scripture. And and what Jesus and the disciples and his followers show us is that there is another way. I get a little nervous, actually, when churches talk about, oh, it's the St. Swithin's family. Because today, family's a really loaded thing. Mm-hmm. And I think about my own experience as a queer person. Family hasn't always felt safe for me. And so if and then certainly there are lots of queer folks I know who have been kicked out of their family, who have been assaulted verbally or physically by their families for being queer and so when we say oh the church is the family we're at saint swithin's family what messages is that saying about who we actually are so i always get a little and frankly a little creeped out it's like hey we're all one big happy family because i'm like is this some like stepford wives like what's behind (laughs) the curtain sort of thing but then in the queer community i'm totally okay with family So maybe this is some bias I have against the church that I should talk about with my therapist. Um, That's why they're there. Exactly. And, but I think about, I think about the football league and we talk about the Providence gay flag football family. And that really does feel to me like a family, the way I see Jesus defining family in scripture, a place of, of, of unconditional love, support of welcome, of the moment anyone is in need, there's 15 people there to help out, that works with the community, that makes sure no one is alone, that makes sure everyone is cared for, that looks out for each other, um, and and has that safety of community that I wish was always true of the church. Yeah, I my mom showed me this bible quote recently because i say friends a lot like Mm. even when i'm just like writing emails i'll start it with hey team or hey friends um and in acts 116 peter addresses a crowd of like 120 people and the way that he gathers them is with that phrase friends Mm. right um jesus says i uh i no longer call you servants but i call you friends yeah and thinking of moving out of that idea of just family because you're right it is a loaded word now Mm. no matter what whether you love your family and they're like your end-all be-all or whether you're like i will never speak to them another day in my life how do we perpetuate triggers in the episcopal church Mm -hmm. without even realizing it or it even being on our radar that we are just as much of a trigger as any 
other type of entity. Right. And I think about all the things we say unintentionally. So it's like, oh, brothers and sisters, the peace of the Lord be always with you. So where does that leave the gender nonconforming and trans community? Mm-hmm. When we say family, and that's true for a lot of people, not just queer folks. So I always try to use like friends or beloved of God mm-hmm. instead because the language we use matters and and people listen to the words we actually use. Yes, they do. And I think we've forgotten that sort of idea that words matter. And as you were saying that we have not held ourselves accountable in multitude of ways for a multitude of things that we have done, but in that it is very easy to do a quick flip. It's very easy to say, hey y'all, instead of something else, because that is including of everyone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that idea of accountability is really important. And and I think, and don't get me wrong, the Episcopal Church has made a lot of great strides. Oh, the absolutely. The fact that, like, I'm here and a trans person and queer and gay and a priest is something I didn't think was possible 15, 20 years ago. We've got a long way to go. And the reality is a not insignificant amount of moments where still to this day in this place, I don't feel safe in the church. And if as a priest with uber amounts of privilege that the caller comes with, I don't feel safe, what does that say about where we really are in creating inclusive spaces for queer people today? If you were to queer the church, whatever you think that definition means, how would that look to you? So I think if I were to queer the church and I had all sorts of authority and power and people just had to do what all I authority, said. All authority, all money, oh, whatever you goodness. need, the world is your oyster, go forth. So I think what I would do, um, I would start, frankly, with education. And I'd start by educating the leadership of the church, particularly the clergy. Canons require us to have anti-racism training. We are not required to have any training around the queer community. So the first thing I would do is actually train the leadership about language, about experience, about policies and polity that impact the queer community. Because, um, I mean, you can go through your whole seminar experience and be ordained and never once had to think about what's the queer experience in the church. So mm-hmm. I'd, start, I'd start there. Then I would start by um, removing some of the gendered language for people in God in our liturgy. You know, and because I'm a high church kind of guy, then put everything in right one, but that's just me. <laughs> um, and then I'd also start thinking about the images. So pedagogy says in classrooms, when students can see themselves, they, would, they do better. So let's start changing some of the artwork and imagery that are in our spaces to reflect the diversity of our communities, the diversity of humanity. Um, And so to change and play up with some images we have for God. Um, uh, And then I would also say that we need to start thinking differently about how we understand relationships. 
Um, and I'm particularly thinking about intimate relationships because I believe there are a lot of very valid relationships that are consistent with what the outline of relationships are supposed to be that we find in the prayer book, that we find in scripture, that don't look like a heteronormative lifestyle. And so I think there are parts of the queer culture that have just obliterated the binary that the church would do well to, um, to take on and to, to see as valid and not to say, no, because that's different than what we have said for this period of time, um, then it's less than, but to say that's actually also an equally valid and beautiful expression of the love of God in just a way we haven't thought about before. So that's where I'd start. Do you think there's anything inherently queer about the church? I think if the church was actually fully living into who the church is supposed to be, absolutely. I think Jesus is a big old queer. And I'm not talking <laughs> about who Jesus may or may not in his earthly life been sexually attracted to. But Jesus is all about breaking down um, barriers, breaking down the binary, showing that the status quo in the way of this world is not actually the way of God. Jesus is about drawing in and bringing all those people who have been cast aside by the society, the rejects and the freaks, and said, you're my people. I don't know if you've been to any queer establishments, but like that's who's there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, and so I think Jesus in a lot of ways um, embodies the very best of the queer community and it would do the church well to do likewise. I feel like that's a great place to stop unless there's something that we haven't touched upon that you're like, I have to say this. And as I said at the beginning, this, conversation could go on for years really. i mean i think the biggest thing for me is you know archbishop william temple uh, a former archbishop mm -hmm. of canterbury once said the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members and i think when it comes to the queer community we have fallen fall sh far short of that I don't think we have gone out to where queer people are and said, hey, we believe that there is a God. We have known in our experience there is a God, and that God is defined by love, which means God loves you. And we're sorry for the ways we've been jerks about it, but God loves you. Mm -hmm. And and we haven't made space within our institutions and organizations as they exist to let queer people come and be queer people, how they define that. And so while we've done some good things, you know, I know I stand on the shoulders of so many people, queer and otherwise, that allow me to be here. From Absalom Jones, the first African-American priest in the church, to the Philadelphia 11, to gay men who were kicked out of the ordination process when they came out, to folks like Gene Robinson and Cameron Partridge, who's a trans priest and a friend of mine who's out in California, who is instrumental in my discernment. I get all of that had to happen for me to sit here and we still have a long way to go because we're not living into those ideals of Jesus to break down systems and barriers of oppression and all the types of supremacy that plagued the church. We haven't actually been about the work of love and we're not always a safe 
place, even for our clergy. And so we got work to do, uh, and Jesus is just waiting for us to show up and do the work. And understanding that being welcoming is not opening your door wider, it's going out of it. Right. Yeah, and this whole like, oh, let's be welcome and be hospitable, we don't actually know what that means. Because just opening the doors is not it. It means we have to do that hard, hard work of looking at who we are, what we say, where our biases and prejudices and bigotries are, and do the work to actually change those. We're seeing this, I think, just the beginning steps of this around race in the church, um, but we haven't begun to, to do that with the queer community. Wonderful. And Dante, if we wanted to see you on a Sunday morning, where, where could we do that? So for the time being, you can find me at St. Luke's Church in East Greenwich. Awesome. Do you want to plug your socials too, or is that not who you are? Uh, yeah, totally follow me at Father Ducky. Uh, hit me up on the Instagrams. Uh, <laughs> that's really where I am most of the time. But follow me on Instagram, Facebook, uh, the Twitters. Uh, the yeah. Twitters? The Twitters. Great. That's the technical term for that? Oh, I'm so thank you for yeah. educating me. You're welcome. <laughs> awesome. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thanks I'm for so me. happy that we were able to make space. And thank you for your honesty and integrity. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tea Time Theology. We would like to thank our sponsor, the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island, and the Right Reverend Nicholas Nisley, as well as our guests today. You can follow us at Tea Time Theology on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This season of Tea Time Theology is hosted and organized by Ivy Swinsky. Our music is mixed and performed by Mo Ray Akande. The podcast is recorded and edited by me, Taylor Wilkie.